0: Good. Everybody good? Toby, shut those doors. In or out? Uh, It's so good to be back with you. Uh, It was rather unfortunate uh, that our family got sick right on Easter. Um, But the Lord knew. And appreciate Dennis stepping in. Um, Last minute, um, my wife... Uh, oddly tested positive for COVID, so we went into quarantine. And so we had to spend like 10 days with just us and our family, uh, which was like being imprisoned at home with a bunch of elementary sick kids. And so we all passed it around, the sickness that was there. um, And uh, we are so glad to be out of that mess and back here with you. I'm incredibly disappointed because I had hoped to talk about the unpardonable sin on Easter, while all your friends and family were here, and the Lord thought otherwise. And so it's, uh, now it's the day of reckoning, and so we're going to get there today. Uh, let's pray, and then we got a lot of text to cover, and so we're just going to jump in, okay? So let's pray and ask for God's help, and let's get after it. Um, Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be Thy name. Uh, thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, begin here with all of that. Begin in me with all of that. Begin in us with all of that. And so would you hallow your name in my heart and in my brothers' and sisters' hearts so that we might rightly know you and worship you and love you. God, would you make us keenly aware that all of our sins are forgiven and that we have unlimited access to you through the cross of Jesus Christ. God, would you... um, Make us particularly resistant to the pressures that we see Jesus face. And God, would you make us strong, like He is strong, to resist the pressures that He faced. Left to ourselves, we crumble. But by your Holy Spirit, empowered, we can resist pressures from within and pressures from without. And so God, I pray that you would make my brothers and sisters strong. That we might be strong for one another and that we might be strong for those that need Jesus in our lives. And so God, um, help us understand your word and to apply it to our lives and to glorify you through it. And so God, we want to dive all the way into the text today. And we ask for your help in the strong name of Jesus, everyone said. If you have a Bible, I really hope you do, open it up to Mark chapter 3. I'm going to tell you over and again... Uh, If you come to church here, it is going to be helpful for you to bring a Bible, to bring notes, to dive in. And then in the same breath, I'm going to say, you will be better served to not just come here and study the Word, but to be in a house church together with people where you can go even deeper together. What we do here on Sundays and what house churches do throughout all the week, complement one another. But the goal is the same. We're here to make disciples through the scriptures, all right? So that's my agenda, and it's straightforward. We are going to um, look at this passage, and I'm not trying to take some stories from without and bring it and just talk to you about some psychology or some stories. I'm actually wanting to get as deep as we can into this text. And I'll tell you, the guys that get up here to preach, that's the same goal, all right? So I say that to say, bring your Bible. It ain't a one, is you don't get stickers, But bring your Bible, all right? Uh, Let's look at it. Um, Verse 20 of Mark chapter 3. And he went home, and the crowd gathered again. So this is consistent with what we've seen so far, is that a crowd is gathering around Jesus. So that they could not even eat. All right. Some of our Baptists, right there, they're out. They're out doing ministry. If we ain't pot lucking, all right. And when the family, his family, heard about it, they went out to seize him or arrest him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Literally in the Greek, he is outside of himself. He he got something mentally going on wrong with him. Now, verse twenty-two picks up his conflict with the scribes, and it goes down into the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In verse 30. Pick up in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came. That's again. So it picks up family on the first end. We have this thing with the scribes. And then at the end, it's it's dealing with family. And standing outside, they sent and called for him. And the crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now, these are the children of natural birth, Mary and Joseph, after Jesus was born. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? Who? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Okay, so what is happening in this segment of passage. And the reason it goes together is what's called theological bracketing or what I would call sandwiching. All right, So we have an account of Jesus dealing with family, an account of Jesus dealing with the scribes, and then family again. And so here's, here's what I want to talk I want to talk about two different types of pressure that every believer is going to face. I don't know of a believer that has not had to face two pressures. One has to deal with family, and the other has to do with scribes. Alright, so let's look at the first one. The first one has to do with Jesus' family trying to slow His roll. Now, let's pause here for a second. Right, think about your context. Our families are a lot of times... The first places that we experience a lot of things. For instance, in our family, I've, I've had to come to this conclusion, when we play board games, do I let my kids win or do I smash them? Right? When we play basketball, they're like seven, eight, nine, and they're 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 aspiring to be Space Jam Michael Jordan, not LeBron James. Right? And so they're trying to shoot a basketball, and I've got this decision, because the ball's traveling right here. Do I let them make it, or do I teach them about life? <laughs> right? And think about this. A lot of times, the first pe- people that yelled at you, the first people um, that bit you, unless you were an only child, and that was probably public school, only children have no idea, all right? First person that bit you, the first, I mean, a lot of your first experiences happen at home. And so family can be a God-given gift to springboard you into life, into your calling. They know you so well. And they can be the primary source of helping you discover God's purposes and will for your life. Or they can be one of the most detrimental, negative, soul-sucking, wet blanket on everything that God has for you. Do you know what I'm talking about? They g- Listen, God is not against family. It's His idea. He created family. But in a fallen world, when family is not oriented to the God of the universe, is there anything that discourages us more than a family that won't get on board with Jesus? How about this? Let me, let me just talk for a Let's be honest for a minute. Some of us, I asked you to get on an and go share the gospel in Panama or Guatemala or in Asia, you're in. Like you can get in there and you would share the gospel. But if I told you right now to get on the phone and to call that family member that doesn't love Jesus and to start to share Jesus with them, you would say, Send me to Guatemala. Right? Some of us would say when it gets into family and we start to our faith gets there, like it gets a little messy. It's complicated in ways. Like for some of us, we have been avoiding having the Jesus conversation with family just because we know it's going to go sideways. But you put us in front of a stranger, we're bold as a lion. Family has its own unique challenges in ministry. Would you agree with that? Jesus' first pressure is going to come from his family Trying to what your scripture says is seize him. They're trying to arrest him. They're trying to slow his role. They're trying to put a wet blanket on God's purposes and fire in his life. Church, you're going to face this. Jesus will not be slow from now. I could say, um, what's motivating it here? The first thing we says that he's not eating. So maybe mom, I know we've got moms in here. Your baby isn't eating well enough, so maybe she's like, listen, the boy's not eating. We gotta get some, gotta get some burritos in my man Jesus. I don't know what Mary's at. But we know that at the very least we can say this, that some of his family misunderstand him. Have you ever been, has your faith ever been misunderstood by members of your family? Where they made your faith out to be something that you would say, that's not what my faith really is? Now, for, I, I get that in some ways because for the first 30 years of his life, he is fulfilling the scriptures by being an obedient son, by serving his family, by, by being perfect, in that case, by being a righteous son who provides for his family. Okay, So I get that. And now we get into his public ministry and they don't understand why he's out there in public and people drawn to him. And Jesus, can't you just keep your head down and stay at home. Why, Jesus, do you have to be so zealous for the glory of God? Anybody had this conversation with me? Why you gotta be so Christian? Can't you just attend church on Christmas and Easter? Like the rest of us? Why you gotta be all in on the Jesus thing? Why you gotta be so fanatical? Right? Why, why don't you just turn that, why don't you just turn it down a little bit, right? Now, here's the thing. What's so so weird about the word fanatical is we're 100% cool with it as long as it's a Bronco or a Rocky, whatever that is, right? We will pay large amounts of money to watch it, to participate in it, to have a jersey from it, right? Grown men will actually not wear clothes and paint their bodies Right? I haven't seen that. I've seen nobody show up at church like that. (laughs) Y'all just ain't fanatical enough. (laughs) I take that back. Please don't. Please don't. I could just see some of you are hairy enough. Y'all just shave the cross right in (laughs) to the sweater vest. Please don't. (laughs) That ruins the witness. Um, Just kidding. What's wrong with fanatical? We're fanatical as long as it's stuff that doesn't matter. Right? If, if, if being fanatical or zealous or too Christian or too serious about Jesus is a problem, pray I get worse. Pray I get worse. They don't want him... To do this. And I'm going to argue that probably the brothers at the very least don't want him to go public to, because he's gathering this crowd, and it's primarily because I I think that they're afraid of the attention they're going to be drawn to them because of the attention that's drawn to him. They're going to be guilty by association. And as Jesus is drawing what, thousands and thousands of people and healing people, you think Rome's not going to find out about that? In history, we know Rome finds out about it, right? You think King Herod isn't going to find out about that? Do you think the Pharisees and all of their power are not going to find out about that, Jesus? Right? Do you, like, Rome, do you know what those Italians do to people that claim to be king? They go full mafia. They kill you, your brother, your sister, your mama, your cousin, your best friend. Like that, Rome is full like Tony Soprano here, okay? Like Jesus, don't you know they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna whack you and everybody around you? That includes us, right? Do you know what, Her- Herod killed his own sons because he's afraid of them taking his throne. What do you think he's going to do to some preacher from Galilee, right? That dude's straight mental illness sketched out. You need to lay low, brother. How about this? The Pharisees, we've talked about this in the previous passages, you think that they like their authority as far as the spiritual authority of Israel challenged? Bro, you're about to get full canceled Old Testament style. What we have in the family of Jesus is cowardice disguised and dressed up as self-preservation. And so the response is, Seizing Jesus, trying to box God in, trying to limit God in Jesus. Isn't that wild? Now, look, if we look down now, the second bracket on there, 30 through 35, look at what's happening in your Bible spatially. Where are Jesus' family standing? Outside. Look at spatially it says that they were standing outside and they sent to Him. Now, if you've been with us through this Mark series, Jesus all the time, I mean, even previously with the apostles, calls people to Himself and they either come or they don't come. Remember, we've been looking at this theme of Jesus calling disciples, crowds, man with the withered hand, and either they come or they're Pharisees, they don't come. Now, we got the roles reverses. They're seeking Jesus as long as Jesus will come to them. They're on the outside saying, Jesus, leave what you're doing and what you've been called to do and your purpose and the will of God for you and come and do our will and come outside to us. Look at the distance between standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and verse 32 and a crowd was sitting around him. Are we, as disciples, sitting around him? Or are we outside trying to get him to come sit around us? I mean, this is not accidental language here as far as the picture of what's happening. What does that look like? Instead they call Him outside, and instead of responding to His call to come inside and sit around Him, they are trying to draw Him away. So here's the note, and I, if you've taken notes, I hope you write this down. I hope you meditate on this this week. We are either trying to draw family inside to Jesus and into the will and the purposes of God for them and their lives, or they are trying to draw us outside and away from Him. Here's the realest of the real. Some people who most misunderstand us or are trying to hold us back are the ones who should be supporting us the most. Family. Doesn't it sting more? If some stranger hates on you, some stranger rejects you, some stranger doesn't respond to you inviting them to come follow Jesus, it just doesn't hit the same way as when a family member you love rejects you. Jesus sees that this is hard people oftentimes for us. Don't we remember in the Gospels where Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword? Where I'm going to divide this family member from that family member and this one from there? Do we think that doesn't apply? you think that's not going to be the case? Um, We were in, uh, I took a team of college students for a summer in the Middle East, and we had the opportunity um, to serve in, Bethlehem and about 200 meters from where um, Jesus supposedly was born there's a huge church in the square almost entirely Muslim whole area and um, we took some um, country boys from and gals from Oklahoma and they took a banjo and a guitar and drums and we literally played like bluegrass and worship stuff and uh, my worship leader at the time in our college ministry also got himself through college by being in a bar band which is so typical of Oklahoma, got that red dirt country, and so we just went, and so uh, played worship and stuff, and we draw crowds of 100, 200 uh, Muslim people that just come and listen to this music that's from this other place of the world, we had people out there that made contacts with them, got phone numbers, shared the gospel with them, in the course of time, some of those people came to Christ, so those Muslim people turned from Islam with their family, and trusted in Jesus, and we would get up throughout the week, and get coffee with them, meals with them, and invest in them and make disciples with them. And so we use music as a platform and a ministry in order to share the gospel and to make disciples. One such Muslim that turned his life to Christ contacted us and said, my family is ready to kill me. And they've said that if I continue to follow Jesus, I cannot live under their roof. And so I don't know where I'm staying tonight. And so, in that moment, he's, what do I do? Right? And so, this is an incredible time for the church to be the family of God and came alongside him and helped him kind of navigate that and get him housing and taken care of. I mean, his support system ripped out from under him. It had created this division, like a sword, because he is not following the false god and his false prophet Muhammad, but he's following Christ. How many of us, in a different context, can look at that and say, that's exactly the same kind of sword we've experienced in our families? Now, I'm going to say that at the same breath. I want to give you some hope here. Because, even in the disciples list that we just read, there's brothers that are inside that list. James and John are brothers. Right? Peter and Andrew are brothers. So it doesn't mean necessarily everybody that follows Christ is going to be divided from their natural born family. Many of us would say some of the closest brothers and sisters in Christ that we have happen to also be biologically related to us. We would also say in the same breath, some people biologically related to us, we would not want to take a vacation with those people or leave our kids with them. Anybody? Is that too real? Are they here with you? Right? So I I want to give you some hope here. Do you realize we went through the book of Jude? Jude is the half brother of Jesus, who is going to come to grips with the gospel and who his half brother Jesus is, that he's fully God and fully man. Jude is going to call Jesus his Lord. And he's going to eventually die for Jesus. Family can get it. They might misunderstand for a while, but some family is going to get it. Don't stop praying for them, church. You hear me? So here's the first thing. The first pressure that Jesus navigates well is the pressure of family trying to throw a wet blanket on Him and the will of God for His life. By the Holy Spirit, you can too. By God's grace, you can overcome that toxic pressure as well. All right? Second. Now, here's the second. So those are the brackets. That's the sandwich. Let's get to the meat that's here in the middle. Verse 22. Look down. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebub And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. Pause. Let's stop right here. All the time, I'm trying to get you to maybe think about Scripture and studying it slower. First question, who are the scribes? Jerusalem, maybe you're familiar with, major city for the people of God in Israel. So this is city folk. They're up in, around Galilee. So they're they're kind of country boys that are out in the country. So the city comes to them, and it says they came down from Jerusalem, and they were this people called scribes. Now, scribes were originally copyists, but they became teachers. The best um, equivalent in our culture is probably uh, university professors. They're the Harvard-educated experts of their time and of their place. So whenever someone wants to validate an argument, they would say, experts say, I mean, they do that here, or science says, right? So they would come and say, well, this expert agrees with my position, and they were quoted and even backed up arguments like that for them. So they were um, oftentimes Pharisees. Uh, these overlapped. Um, they were a person that was trained in writing, in skills. Um, they were used to record events and decisions. Um, we see this in the Old Testament of Jeremiah 36:26, 26, 1 Chronicles 24, 6, Esther three twelve. Scribes are all present in the Old Testament. Incredibly highly educated. I mean, it's really hard for us to grasp the level of discipline that these people had in order to achieve the level of education that they achieved at that time. They become experts in God's Word, copying it, preserving it, and teaching it. I would argue this. Um, They are incredibly valuable to church history because the preservation of the texts fell to copyists. Um, They were... And for that matter, a special class of people. They had special pens of which they used. They selected special animals for the skins on which to use to copy Scripture. Um, they had special clothing that they wore. Um, many of the things that we learn about copyists come from outside of the Bible. For instance, a copyist could only copy one letter at a time, not one word at a time. And if ever two of the letters touched each other, this was considered an an error, and they would have to start it all over. So imagine writing a book like Isaiah, like 60-something chapters in, and then all of a sudden, like two letters touch each other, and you're starting all the way over. They said of the scribes that you could take a scroll of, say, like Nehemiah, right? And you could roll the scroll with its Hebrew words up, take a pen and stab it through, and a scribe could tell you every single letter it would hit all the way through. Now, they would never do this, but that was meant to express the level of memorization and intimacy that they had with the actual text. There's ceremonies that they would have to perform to write God's name even one time, after which they would have to burn the pen and burn the clothes that they wore. We don't understand the level of education and commitment that many of these people had when they addressed the text. If they were caught adultering or changing the word at all, It was very clear. It was the death penalty. God used this group of people to preserve the text. So, Even go further, likely Ezra in the Bible is a scribe. God even used them in the Old Testament, uh, in Ezra 7, 6, to to, uh, use their gifts for God's people. Here's something that I've said before about the Pharisees, and I'll say it again about the scribes. And I want you to get this because all of us are in danger of the same thing. Scribes started out good. They don't come on the scene as Adolf Hitler. They start out God-ordained, useful, good, and they become a party that leads in the murdering of Jesus on the cross. How does that happen? How do you go from Ezra and serving God and preserving Scripture, how do you go from good to the fact of you're willing to murder God in the flesh? Right? How do organizations, political parties, churches, businesses, go from something that is good to something that does atrocities? little by little, sin by sin, doesn't matter how pretty their sins are. They were like, here's how it is, they were like Satan. They knew some of the Bible, but they don't love God. And I know a lot of churches like that, that are a half step away from being no different from the scribes, who come week after week talking information but they're not introducing people to the living God. They know just enough Bible, but they don't love God. Satan knows the Scriptures. Watch him quote it to Jesus in the temptations. But he doesn't love God. Oh Lord, keep us from being scribes who can quote verses... But God, you're not chief in our hearts. See, even Jesus' teaching was juxtaposed in contrast to theirs, because they taught facts or information, but Jesus taught as one with authority. Anybody read that before? As though he's the one who wrote it? Jesus would come and say, You search the scriptures, thinking in them you have life. It is they that speak of me. You're missing the forest for the trees. So, if the first challenge is family, and we could say that's, that's, that's serious, right? Like the first challenge, the first pressure is family. Here's what the second one is. The second pressure and the second challenge that every Christian I know is, has faced or will face, here's what it is you're going to meet smart people who don't love Jesus. It's what most of us ran into when we went to college. I mean, even the elders, and I know Lee, uh, we've been in conversations about introducing apologetics to our youth and things like that to prepare our youth to encounter smart people who don't love Jesus. Not every smart person doesn't love Jesus. Let me give you an example. How about the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul was not blue-collar. He was an intellectual that Jesus got a hold of his heart, and he was both intelligent and he loved Jesus. Some people inside of this church are going to be highly intelligent, and God wants to use your mind to defend your brothers and sisters in Christ. Exactly what C.S. Lewis did. Do you hear what I'm saying? All of us, I don't care if you got a 15-horsepower Johnson or a 300-horsepower Hemi, Whatever kind of mind that you have, the scriptures has called you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're going to love God with your mind. But we're going to run into people that are going to have tenure, positions of authority. They're going to have degrees. They're going to be experts. They're going to be university professors. They're going to be smart people who don't love God, they love sin. And we're going to raise up, hopefully, in this church, smart people who hate sin and love God. Amen? But here's the thing. Every single one of us is going to deal with some smart person who doesn't love God. And that's what Jesus does. He deals with city folk, highly educated, who don't love God. Now, I want to argue he does three parables here, and they're all logical. He doesn't even quote the Old Testament. He does three logical things. And they're so simple. Let's read it. Uh, and he said, called them to him. Now, this is kind of brilliant because apparently what they're saying about him being a Belzebul is being said behind his back. Right? Um, quick note, if you're unfamiliar with the term Belzebul, it is a Canaanite deity um, of the Old Testament, which really brilliantly, um, they changed one, if you've ever seen it called Belzebulb. Versus Beelzebul. Beelzebul is the Canaanite deity that basically means Lord of the house. Which is going to be relevant for what what Jesus is going to say here. The Jews, God's people, in first kings changed it to Beelzebub, which meant Lord of the flies. Anybody ever read that book? It's exactly from right here. And actually kind of describes what it means to follow Satan. Alright. Another day, another dollar. Alright. So Beelzebul... The prince of demons, so this Canaanite deity was equated with Satan, and they're going to do this, and to mock him, God's people basically changed his name to Lord of the Flies instead of Lord of the House. And he said to them in parables, so Jesus' response to this is to call them to his face. Somewhere else behind his back, they're saying this stuff, and he says, he calls them to him, and he said to him, Jesus is not running from these people, he's not afraid to engage them, he's not hiding his truth in an intellectual corner, He's taking it right to their grill. Do you see this? He called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Just ask my boy Abraham Lincoln. All right. Nobody got that. All right. Well, history. Praise God. Um, 25. (laughs) If a house, which is relevant to bull, is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and indeed he may plunder his house. There's three illustrations here. I want to come back to that last one at the end of the sermon. So, first thing, here's what the scribes have become, and I think every one of us has met this person. They're so smart that they become dumb. You're the smartest dumb person, or dumbest smart person. I don't know, maybe both, right? And he's like, simple logic would say, if I am Satan, why would I send somebody to cast out my demons? If I'm trying to spread my demonic kingdom... That makes no logical sense. He appeals to logic here. Like something that Sun Tzu, if you read the, the Art of War, would say the same thing. If you can divide your opponent, you make them weaker. You want to talk about how weak our country is right now? Probably some of the weakest our country has ever been because we're so divided. Right? I mean, if you think about... Let's just go to our country for a second. If you think about 9-11 and how... As big of an atrocity as that was, how that unified our country. Like, y'all remember 912? Anybody? Come on now. How strong and united did the country feel at that time? Now, go look on Facebook right now, and there's people ready to go to civil war. We are divided in a way. All the statistics, all the demographics would say we're polarized in a way. That we're much weaker than nine twelve, Even though we sustained a terrorist attack the day before. Why? Because when a kingdom is divided, it's weaker. You don't have to be a sociologist to understand this logic. How about this? When you're... Put it like this in your marriage. If your marriage was under attack and somebody on the outside of your marriage... Men, listen to me. If, somebody, if some man on the outside of your marriage came in and tried to punch your wife in the face, y'all would go WWE tag team and whoop that dude. I have so much faith in the men in this church and some of your wives. They're, you know, they're scrappy, right? You together would come together and your wife would come off the top turnbuckle while you held them down. Right? I believe in you. But here's the thing. Watch on TV, there's stuff that you put in your mind, and brains on social media, there's stuff that divides you from your spouse all the time, and we let that slip right in the door of our homes and divide us to make us think that our wives are our enemy, or wives you think that your husband is your enemy. And in that moment, isn't your family the weakest? Isn't your family the weakest? You don't have to be a social scientist to understand Jesus' rebuttal to them. A house divided cannot stand. House divided can't stand. There's logic. Jesus responds with logic. Now, this precedes one of the sternest rebukes that exist inside of Scripture. Okay? This precedes that. Verse 28, truly. The word truly in verse 28 is the word amen. We usually wait till someone finishes talking to say amen. I know, don't do it right now. You've not done it this whole sermon, all right? You're, you're out, all right? Someone's going to be like, hallelujah. All right, that counts, all right? But usually when someone prays, at the end of it, if we stand in agreement that that is the truth, And that may it be so, we say amen at the end of prayers. We say amen at the end of preaching to agree and affirm and to stand with it. Jesus is self-authenticating. He says amen on the front end because he doesn't need you to agree with him for what he says to be true. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. I want to stop right there. Because I have studied this my whole life and I've never sunk my teeth into that like I have this last week. Do you understand the gospel? That literally every sin you've ever committed can be forgiven through the cross of Jesus Christ. Every trash that's come out of your mouth every profanity, every sexual sin, every disgusting and horrible thing that you've done that literally you try so much to hide from the rest of us that if we found out what you did, we might be tempted to think less of you. Those skeletons in your closet, literally every sin you've ever committed, all the sins can be forgiven the children of man because of what Jesus has done on the cross. I feel like that verse right there has been skipped over because of what verse 29 is going to say. And I think before we ever get to the next verse, we should get to this verse right here, that Jesus is in the sin-forgiving business. Atrocities. Abortion, rape, murder, fits of anger, your selfishness, the things you've said to others, the things that you've irreverently said to God. Blasphemies, the stuff that would rightly send you to the pit of hell, can be forgiven in the cross of Jesus Christ, who died for your sins, buried them, and rose from the grave that you might have new life. Oh my goodness. Preach the gospel right there. All sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Verse 29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. That's ESV. I know there's King James other things out there. But is guilty of an eternal sin. Verse 30, now this is incredible, and I say this all the time. If you're going to read the Bible, you've got to study it in context. House church leaders, get your people studying the Bible in context verse 34 right like there's there's a, that didn't end right there there's a 4 here they were saying that's an imperative verb saying they kept saying they were continuing this is not a one time something they uttered this is a habitual posture or attitude it is a spiritual disposition that goes on unbroken they were saying imperative verb he has an unclean spirit Okay, so what's going on here? First thing, and I think this is relevant, Jesus did what he did in concert and in power of the Holy Spirit. As the God-man, he teaches us to walk in the Spirit by himself, walking with the Holy Spirit. And if I, I could do a whole sermon on in the Trinity, we talk about the Father and being followers of Jesus. But if we say we're followers of the Holy Ghost, people are like, that's creepy, right? There's other churches for that down the highway, all right. But God the Holy Spirit is fully God. And Jesus teaching, teaches us as men to walk in the power of the Holy Ghost. I can use that word. Some of you King James people, right? right? Uh, Holy Spirit. We're so new age with our spirit language. Right. I learned as a kid, Holy Ghost. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? Oh, it's good. Thank you. Oh my gosh, some of you went to church. That's surprising. Um, talk about this for a minute. Anybody know John 14, 6? Come on, I want to kids. Anybody know John 14, 6? John 14, 6? Nobody? Or, Randy, give it to us. Um, it law, time, Amen. Amen. See, we waited until you finished to say amen. We don't give it to you on the front end. All right? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Do you know that Jesus also said that when the Spirit comes, He will lead you into all truth? What is the truth that the Spirit is going to lead you into? How about Jesus? That if you're going to know Jesus, the truth, it's going to be because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart and mind. When we got saved, it was the Holy Spirit who took us from our sin and took the gospel that Jesus accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection, plotted it to our heart that we might be regenerated and be in faith. I mean, we undermine the role of the Holy Spirit like woe. Let me say a couple things. 1 John 4, 2-3. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That's the Spirit of God that causes people to get in the baptismal waters and confess Him, or go to their workplace and confess them. And it is another Spirit that causes us to deny who Jesus actually is, the God in the flesh. How about 1 Corinthians 12.3? Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the... Holy Spirit. You can't truly, from your heart, confess Jesus is Lord except by the enabling of the Holy Spirit. Now, come back to this thing. Jesus comes to this text and he says, Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit is coming into a believer and he's saying, Listen, look at creation. Romans chapter 1, all the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, as the psalmist says. The immutable attributes of God are clearly displayed in what has been made, and the Holy Spirit begins to make that true. It says that unbelievers suppress the truth of God that has been revealed to them. When a believer comes and begins to share the gospel with a lost person, and the Holy Spirit begins to work on that person's heart, and they kimbe matumbo that thing and just swat it down, saying, I want nothing to do with truth. They begin to explain it away, and they begin to say, Well, Jesus was a good teacher, right? Or if they're a Buddhist, they would say, he's just an enlightened spiritual person like you can be. and Or we could go to our, our Mormon friends, we could throw a rock and hit them, that he was a man just like you, right? And you could become a god and have your own planet. There's some sort of polygamy that's involved there, okay? And like, or we could come to Islam, he's just a prophet, right? He's just a prophet like any other prophet. When we are confronted with the truth that the Holy Spirit brings to our doorstep, and we explain it away, make Jesus out to be any other thing. Here, it's going to be belizable. But in our culture, he's just a moral guide. In that moment, in our heart, we are rejecting what the Holy Spirit is saying. We're blaspheming. The, the The term for blasphemy is this. Um, it's it's a transliteration of the Greek. It means an irreverent defiance or a slanderous resistance to God. Here's maybe another way to put it. It's stubborn refusal. It's a stubborn refusal. And and I know there's people that's come to me throughout my ministry and they've been afraid. I'm afraid because I you know, said damn is God's last name or something, that I have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Some theologians said it's, it's a rejection of miracles. Some say that it's, it's genocide. Some say it's adultery. Some say it's murder. Very clearly in verse 30, it has to do with the ascribing to the works and the healings and the, the, the alleviation that he's given to demon-possessed people, ascribing that to Satan, or we could say this, as Satan would lead them to virtually anything else. So this brings us to the doorstep of the question that Jesus asked his disciples and I think every single one of us has to answer. When Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, who do you say that I am? Heaven or hell depends on how you answer that question. Who do you say that I am? Do you agree with me about who I say that I am? Or are you looking to put me in some sort of other category to explain it away. Who do you say that I am? For they were saying, "It's not a one-time thing, it's an imperfect verb, they were habitually, continually in a posture of rejecting who he claimed to be. Jesus brings them to a point of decision. The works that you see or are they from somewhere else? Now, I want to go back to the last thing, and I, and I want to end here. The last thing I want to talk about is the last illustration he gives, because I think it, it brings us to that same decision. If Satan has risen up against himself, right, um, and is divided, he cannot stand. But it's coming to an end. But no one, no one, and enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then indeed he may plunder his house. Now this can be confusing on the surface. Like who is who here? Who's the strong man and who's the stronger man? Who's doing the binding and who's doing the loosing? Now in this picture, what's so odd is it's Jesus kicking in the door of Satan, going in and being like a cow punch, putting the, putting the lasso around him, right? Full jujitsu here, and takes and plunders the house of Belzebel, which is which is brilliant. The fact that he's called Lord of the house, and Jesus is like, ain't your house, it's my house. All your stuff, that's my stuff, right? So this picture is strange to me. And here's the reason why. The, the, the picture here is. In my mind, because I think oftentimes the view is everybody is good with God and Satan is picking off a few people and making them like Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler or Jeffrey Dahmer, right? Like everybody's good people, but Satan is just picking off kind of good people to to like tear them apart. But the actual picture is this world is being ran by Satan and he thinks this is his house And Jesus is coming in with a SWAT team, right? Of the church, he's he's throwing in the frag grenade, right? Or the stun grenade. Frag grenade would be bad. Stun grenade. And he's like, flash bang, everybody in there can't see. He tackles Satan. And then he's like, he's like taking people that's his. Like he's plundering the house of Satan. That right now, you could take the most, like this year, there's going to be atheistic people who are following Satan and his will, and God's just going to be like, oh, you're mine. Oh, you're mine, right? He's going to take the Kanye West, Justin Bieber. Too soon, okay. He's, gonna, he's going, is Keith Richards still alive? Um, somebody that has no business getting saved is going to get saved because he's going to kick in the door of Satan's house and plunder him. You want your verse for missions and evangelism? It's right there. Jesus is saying, I've come to put the lasso of truth around Satan and bind him in such a way he cannot stop me from taking the plunder that I want. How about this, church? You're the plunder of God that Jesus took for himself. You're the plunder of God that Jesus took for himself. Uh, one last story and then we're done. Does he um, in August 23rd, 1973, some of you were alive during this time, an escaped convict crossed the streets of Sweden's capital and entered a bustling bank. I'm not even going to attempt the Swedish name of this. It, it looked like the Perkaravich last name, okay? Credit Banken. That's the part I can read. It's a bank. On Stockholm's uh Normal Storg Square. From underneath a folded jacket, he carried a gun. jan Eric Olsen pulled a loaded submachine gun out at the bank, fired at the c- ceiling, and disguised his voice to sound American. Because if you're robbing a bank, aren't we the best? <laughs> right? And he says in English, the party has just begun. All right? Gotta love them Swedes. Right? Um, <laughs> after wounding a policeman who responded to the silent alarm, The robber took four bank employees hostage. Olsen, a safe cracker who had failed to return to prison after a furlough from his three-year sentence for grand larceny, demanded um, for these hostages $700,000 in Swedish and foreign currency, a getaway car, and a release of Clark Olfusson, who was serving time, kind of one of his accomplices, accomplices, for uh, for armed robbery and was acting as an accessory In 1966, for the murder of a police officer. So get my boy out of prison. I need a car and $700,000. Back in '73, that was a lot of money, all right? Today, you're like, go big or go home, man. Um, Within hours, the police delivered on his request. They got the convict. They got the ransom. And even a blue Ford Mustang. Does anybody know what this story is? I just want to see. Okay. With a full tank of gas. Authorities refused. The robbers demand, though, to let them leave until the hostages in tow were insured safe passages. So they're holed up inside the cramped bank vault. So they had this vault for the bank. And the captives, here's the thing. The captives formed this strange bond with their abductors. Like at one point, like Olsen draped a wool jacket over the shoulders of hostage Kristen Enmark when she began to shiver, so he does a little bit of good to her, soothed her when she had a bad dream, and even gave her a bullet from his gun as a keepsake. The gunman consoled Captain uh, Bergetta Lundbold. I'm butchering these names. That's right. Uh, if you want me to pronounce your name right, have an American name, all right? Uh, when she couldn't reach her family by phone, he let her call her family by phone to say they're all right, but she couldn't reach him. He encouraged her, try again, don't give up. Like he started to give like, encouragement. When hostage Elizabeth OldenGrand complained of claustrophobia because they were in this vault, he tied a rope to her and allowed her to walk outside the vault attached to a 30-foot rope. OldenGrand later told the New Yorker um, that although she was leased, I remember thinking of how kind he was to allow me to leave the vault. Olsen's benevolent acts curried the sympathy of the hostages when he treated us so well. Um, the lone male hostage, just so you think it's not women, there's three women, one male, Sven Safström, we, and I quote, we could think of him as an emergency god. It's a literal quote. We could think of the, the doctor as an emergency god. By the second day, the hostages were on a first-name basis with their captors. And they started to fear the police more than their abductors. Now, in psychology, they begin to say that your connection to your kidnappers can become so strong that you actually begin to think that the right authorities are a threat. In psychology, we know this happens inside of humans. When the police commissioner was allowed inside, the speck, allowed inside to inspect The hostages health. he noticed that the captives appeared hostile to him but relaxed and jovial with the gunmen. The police chief told the press that he doubted the gunmen would harm the hostages because they had developed such a relationship. In March, one of the captives even phoned the Swedish prime minister I love that his name is Olaf. (laughs) Palm. Already preoccupied with looming national elections and the deathbed vigil for the country's revered 90-year-old king. And the captive pleaded with him to let the robbers take her with him in the escape car. I fully trust Clark and the robbers, she assured the, the prime minister. I am not desperate. They haven't done a thing to us. On the contrary, they have been very nice. But you know, Olaf, what I'm scared of is that the police will attack us and cause us to die. Even when threatened with physical harm, this is unbelievable, the hostages still saw compassion in their abductors. After Olson threatened to shoot one of Solfstrom in the leg to shake up the police, so the police were not letting them go, so they're like, all right, I'm going to choose one of you hostages, and I'm going to shoot you in the leg, whatever. The hostage recounted um, the account to the newspaper, how kind I thought he was for saying it was just going to be my leg that he would shoot. Inmark tried to convince her fellow hostage to take a bullet. But Sven, it's just the leg. Ultimately, the convicts did no physical harm to the hostages, and on the night of August 28th, after more than 130 hours, the police pumped tear gas into the vault, and the perpetrators quickly surrendered. The police called the hostages to come out first, but four captives, protecting their abductors, to the very end, refused to come out first. Inmark yelled, No, Jan and Clark, go first. You'll gun them down if we do. So literally becoming body shields to protect the one that had kidnapped them. In the doorway of the vault, the convicts and hostages embraced and kissed and shook hands. As the police seized the gunmen, two female hostages cried out, Don't hurt them! They didn't harm us. While Inmark was wheeled away in a stretcher, she shouted to the hand of Olson Clark, I will see you again. The hostages' seemingly irrational attachment to their captors perplexed the police and the public, who even investigated whether Inmark had plotted the robbery with them because they became so close together. The captives were confused too, though. The day following their release, Oldengren asked a psychiatrist, Is there something wrong with me? Why don't I hate them? Psychiatrists compared the behavior to wartime shell shock exhibited by soldiers and explained that the hospital had become emotionally indebted to their abductors and not the police for being death. The moments of the siege, psychiatrists dubbed the strange phenomenon Stockholm syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome is when someone has you in captivity as their slave and they become your emergency God. Some of us, the reason why we don't want to be plunder taken from Satan is because we love our abductor. He's kidnapped us from the kingdom of God and the purposes of God for our life and Jesus is kicking in the door and we're going to have to make a decision: Are we going to are we going to stay with the one who has enslaved us, or are we going to go as plunder? We look as an emergency God, even though we're slaves getting shot in the leg. We look at the small things that are going right, or the small, small good things that we have and we attribute that to the one who's kidnapped us. Are we going to stay with our sin and the one that's kidnapped us or are we going to go with the true authority who's come like a SWAT team to rescue us? I pray for you. All across here. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know whether it's from family or so-called experts. But I know in my own life, I have loved, loved, loved sin. And at one time, I would protect it, I would justify it, I would explain it away. But Jesus kicked in the door of my heart and made me his own. If you're here and you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of all your sins. I want to invite you just even now in faith to call upon the name of the Lord. No one can call upon the name of the Lord and confess Him as Christ apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Not truly. And if you've never trusted Him, you've never confessed Him for all your sins, I just want to invite you to call on Him now. He hears. He's come for you. If that's you here, trust Him. And if you're a Christian here, whether here or online, and you don't know how to navigate the family thing, and you don't have an answer for every skeptic and every critical thought that comes across the internet, you just go to Jesus for the same grace and the same strength that he had to face those battles? Church, I promise you he'll make you wise beyond your years. He'll make you strong where you're weak. In particular, I know there's some of us here who have a family member who we love, who is a against the gospel, who is wayward, who's going through the ringer. If you're a Christian here, and God has a family member that's on your heart, would you lift them before the Lord right now? Maybe before you have any conversation about the gospel with them, maybe we can just right now saturate them in prayer. I don't know the name, just between you and the Holy Spirit. Maybe you would pray against your own Stockholm syndrome. Maybe you'd pray against the Stockholm syndrome in another. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. God, you are the rescuer. You are the deliverer. We were slaves in Egypt kicked in the door and made us free. We thank you for Jesus who laid down his life so that all sins can be forgiven by faith. Lord, you know, the family members that have been prayed for here, God, I just stand in agreement. Would you save sinners through the prayers of your people? through the witness of your people, through the teaching of your people. God, if there's one here that doesn't know you, rescue them. That's my heart. All of this work is beyond us. And so Holy Spirit, come and do what no man can do. Do it for your glory. We pray in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, Amen. Would you stand and sing and worship?